Traditionally, wildfire was allowed to burn on these lands. And historically, our tribe set prescribed fires for different reasons. With all of our treatments now, we try to bring fire to every piece that needs it. This year, we saw a shortage nationally of firefighting resources. You know, we talk a lot about fighting the fire of tomorrow with fuels treatments today. That is our emphasis. And if we want to protect our resources from wildfire, we got to reintroduce fire. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series, Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Lara Tomov. In this episode, we're on the Flathead Reservation in Western Montana, speaking with Tony Nkoshola Jr., Director of the Tribal Forestry Department of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, or CSKT, and Ron Swainey and Daryl Claremont of CSKT's Division of Fire. These interviews are featured in the Life in the Land film on the Sealy Swan, as that region was not only significant for the Kalispell, Salish, and Kootenai Tribes for thousands of years, but today the jurisdiction lines between tribal management and U.S. Forest Service follow the ridgeline of the Mission Mountains, with the Flathead Reservation on the west and the Swan Valley and Sealy Lake region on the east. In 1982, the Mission Mountains Tribal Wilderness became the country's first tribally managed wilderness, and it is managed under the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Management Plan. The geography of the Flathead Reservation is varied, with glacially formed valleys and towering peaks, as well as prairies and grassland hills. Since the late 1800s, forest management on the Flathead Reservation was held by federal agencies. In 1996, management was finally transferred to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, who had stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Tony and his team spoke with us in September of 2021 and share with us about their ecosystem approach to their forestry plan, working in partnership with neighboring jurisdictions, and reconnecting to a traditional relationship with fire on the landscape. Here now is Tony Nkoshola Jr., Director of Forestry for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes. I'm a Confederated Salish Kootenai Tribal member, uh, born and raised here on the Flathead Indian Reservation. Grew up uh, working in the woods, uh, learning in the woods with my, my father and the elders. Spent a lot of time with the elders when I was younger. Really learned the importance of, of taking care of the land, being connected to the land, learning from animals of how, how this land was prepared, what to do, and, and really following the seasons and, and either hunting and gathering uh, different types of berries, roots, uh, animals, fishing. Really working in the forest was just part of how I was brought up. Becoming you know, in the forestry and the forest manager, I really wanted to, to make sure we're managing our forest with the importance of culture and, and use for tribal members as, as opposed to productivity of saw logs. Our forest manager plan is a very unique blend of, of Western science and traditional ecological knowledge. So we, when we had an opportunity in 1996 when we compacted, uh, we started developing our own forest manager plan. It was the first time we could decide what happened on our land. You know, BIA ran the program before that. And so when we developed our plan, we really wanted to to get away from production forestry and, and 
gather this ecosystem management concept, which, you know, back in early 90s really wasn't uh, a huge concept yet. You know, it was a lot of partial cutting, clear cutting, remove everything, plantation. And we really wanted to do a restoration of our land, bringing it back to a natural function where fire, definitely fire was the main component of, the, of shaping this land, uh, replenishing this land, rejuvenating plants and berries and animal grazing areas. So our plan is really interactive and, and ecosystem friendly as we, we see what the land needs. It's not uh, a production forest. It's based on ecosystem balance, wildlife needs. A lot of our cuts look at what the wildlife purpose in that area is, what, what the hydrology need is in that area, protection of streams and barriers for fish habitat, even cultural use of what our, our, our tribal members use this area for recreational, hunting, gathering. We try to incorporate our planning, all those components into, into every plan and, and do a treatment that, that, that helps all. Tony speaks here about the Aboriginal territories of the Salish, Kootenai, and Kalispell tribes and how land stewardship expanded well beyond current reservation boundaries for thousands of years. So historically, the Confederate Salish Kootenai tribes had a very large Aboriginal territory uh, expanded into uh, parts of Washington, Idaho, eastern Montana, up towards Canada, and down towards, uh, you know, Idaho south. And, and we used a lot of these areas for different reasons. Um, our tribe was, was uh, you know, very nomadic with the seasons and, and opportunistic with, with hunting and gathering. So we traveled to every different spots, you know, based on the time of the year, for the time of uh, gathering of roots, you know, maybe, you know, bitterroot is our first root that we pick every year, and that's in the spring. And, and so we would travel to the bitterroot areas, you know, we're, considered Bitterroot Salish and Kalispell because that's where we spent most of our time is in the Bitterroot Valley. Um, but that was one of our main food staples. We've also went towards Nez Perce, you know, for salmon. We would go to Yellowstone in eastern Montana for buffalo. And so we traveled around quite a bit and had a very large uh, Aboriginal territory. Tony shares about the specific connections historically to the Sealy Swan region, just to the west of the Flathead Reservation over the Mission Mountains. So Sealy Swan was, was important for many reasons, uh, not only just the travel corridor, you know, the Jocko Road that we pulled up today uh, was a main corridor that went over to Sealy Swan. And we used that area for hunting and gathering, um, berry picking for sure. You know, there's camas on the other side of the mountains also that we would go gather. It was just the main travel corridor and, and part of the area that we, we called home. You know, our footprint is evident over there if you look at fire scars and intervals of, of certain areas where our ancestors camped. Tony talks about how the connections between CSKT and the Sealy Swan region continue today. So our reservation border ends on, on the tips of the missions and follows the ridgeline south. Um, and like I said, we've used both sides of the mountains for, you know, millennia. And we see the importance of, of working with folks on the other side of the mountain to make sure that, that our treatments here don't stand alone and their treatments there don't stand alone, that we, we cross boundary, we, we work in collaboration. You know, currently we're working with TNC, BLM, uh, within the Swan area over there to bring uh, fire back to some of their land. Bitterroot planting, camas planting, uh, did some understory burning with TNC this year to in the Prim Meadow area to, to rejuvenate. 
that grow in that habitat ecosystem there. We want to make sure that our treatments is connected, you know, across boundaries for sure. Yeah, we work well with all of our neighbors. We were the first tribe to do a, a TFPA, Tribal Forest Protection Act plan with the Lolo National Forest that is borders our west side of the reservation. Uh, where we partnered with them and did a treatment on their side and we did a treatment on our side uh, to, to better reduce the risk of wildfire cross-boundary. I mean, it's, it's learning, learning both ways. Uh, we, we bring some ideas to them and they show us you know, some tactics and bring some ideas to us. You know, we see uh, just because it's Lolo National Forest and it's Flathead National Forest or, or Forest Service ground or, or private ground, we, you know, we see it as important to, to us because it's part of our Aboriginal territory and it's part of our ecosystem. You know, if we do as much as we can on our side, we want to help everyone else on their side and, and vice versa. And they're the same way. They want to help us do areas over here too. And that's just the importance of, of collaboration and working of seeing a bigger picture. It's not just ownership of parcels. It's not produ productivity of forest uh, logging. It's ecosystem balance and, and restoration needs of the landscape. Today, as we're seeing an uptick in prescribed burning practices across the West to manage the health of forest ecosystems as well as to prevent catastrophic-sized wildfires, we're hearing it more and more talked about the errors in the last 150 years of westernized forest management that has prioritized the suppression of wildfires. But what often gets left out of that narrative is just how frequently indigenous peoples actively used fire as a tool and intentionally set fires frequently across the landscape for a variety of reasons, which Tony will mention. From time immemorial, indigenous peoples of the region understood fire as a necessary component of healthy forest and grassland ecosystems. While not only naturally occurring wildfires were allowed to burn, Scientific and oral evidence shows that the vast majority of fires on the landscape were intentionally set by indigenous people. With the influx of white settlement in the late 19th century, government officials prioritized the suppression of wildfires and restricted indigenous peoples from carrying out traditional uses of burning. In 1910, massive wildfires burned throughout the inland northwest and eventually burned over 3 million acres. The devastating scale of these fires was due to a variety of factors, including drought and the sparks that trains would set off on the newly operational railroad lines in the area. A factor in the large scale of these fires, though, includes the decades of fire suppression that occurred leading up to that point and the resulting building up of fuels. After the 1910 fires, U.S. Forest Service management further ramped up tactics to suppress wildfire. The CSKT Division of Fire now integrates prescribed fire into their management. This management includes strategic thinning practices, which promote the health of old-growth forest ecosystems and lower the intensity of a prescribed burn. So traditionally, wildfire was, was allowed to burn on these lands. And historically, our, our tribe set prescribed fires for different reasons. It could be for hunting and grazing areas or, or berry picking areas. We would set them at the right time of year for berry picking. And a lot of times it was for uh, campsites, main, maintenance of campsites, for grazing of our horses, for, for cleaning. We would have a, a firekeeper that would go around these different areas and based on you know, the traditional ecological knowledge of knowing when the burn, uh, what areas the burn was, was, we're still learning from that today. We're still trying to figure out everything our tribe knew just based on how to set fires, where to set fires. And we, we know not all fires were set in the fall and springtime like nowadays. 
just because of the danger of wildfire, the danger of cross-boundary interaction, if it burns onto someone else's land, the liability of it. A lot of the fires were set in the summertime, but it was set in areas where, where it did more good than harm. Um, and with the understanding that, that fire is part of this ecosystem and lethal fire regimes are there for a reason and they replenish uh, the land for, for, for a reason. So understanding the use and the good of fire, we're still learning from our ancestors. With all of our treatments now, we, we try to bring fire to every piece that needs it. We're not saying we're gonna bring it to everything and, and treat every piece of ground the same way, but we're trying to bring fire back in different levels, different stages throughout our management. Here's Ron Sweeney, fire management officer for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, speaking to this reintroduction of fire on the landscape. So we have a forest management plan that talks about ecosystem restoration. And so when we looked at that, dig into it, it's the reintroduction into fire, mimicking fires, the natural disturbance on our landscape. Areas that we focus are typically non-lethal fire regime, one to protect the homes that are currently here, restore the, the cultural values of that land, and uh, to bring back the plants that used to be here. Uh, that uh, the, the animals and the birds and the bugs all want and need. What I've seen is once we introduce fire into the landscape, the vegetation gets renewed. It increases the browse species for animals. Uh, we've seen native plants come back that were laying dormant. We limit crown fire potential. With the reintroduction of fire, if we lift all the branches that are available to a flaming front up. So the trees have less ability to torch, less ability to crown. It's very evident in this particular stand. After we reintroduced fire, all the trees are pruned up. If you had a fire in here, it would typically just be a surface fire because of the work that we've done. It gives us firefighters an opportunity to get in up close and personal with the fire, and it limits the torching and the crown fire potential. The location where we were speaking with Tony, Ron, and Daryl was in an area at the base of the Mission Mountains, which was a wooded area, but called Jocko Prairie. As historically, with the traditional use of fire by Native peoples, this area was more of an open prairie. Tony tells us about the recent treatments the CSKT Division of Fire carried out here to not only restore historical conditions of the landscape, but to reduce the risk of catastrophic-sized wildfires in this area, as several residential homes now exist here. We're located in the Jocko Canyon right now, and there's residents, you know, as we drove up, there's residents all the way up this road. And, and the main, one of the main goals of this project, the Eva Paul project, was to reduce fire hazard within this area, do some movie projects, open up the, the stands a little bit, favor some cereal, cereal uh, tree species and bring fire back into it to reduce that wooey hazard. We've, we've had fires start down in the residence nearby and really uh, you know, Firestone Fire Flats, which was 2015? 14, which really was an emergency evacuation for a lot of folks in, in a scary moment. And so we were trying to tie this piece into that area uh, to, to reduce the fire risk. We had a fire this year up right behind us in the Jocko Primitive area, and one of our main concerns uh, for that fire was putting a fuel break down here uh, where the homes are at, just in case the fire did come down here. So 
this treatment area is, is really focused on WUI and, and hazardous fuel reduction. And just to note here, WUI stands for Wildland Urban Interface, which is the zone of transition between wilderness and the land developed by human activity. So this here, we have an older ponderosa pine uh, that's part of its qualities is it has thicker bark and withstand uh, low intensity fires. And this area here, if you, if you look out, you know, you can see larger pines scattered throughout here. And, and this area is called Jocko Prairie for a reason. It used to be more prairie-like. And that was kind of the main goal of this, this project was to, to bring it back to more of a prairie-like conditions. Here's Ron Sweeney speaking to the fire treatments they did here in the Jocko Prairie and the return of the camas plant. Looking at old photos from the 30s, you could see where it was an open prairie at that time. Um, so we came in and we did an understory thin treatment, removed a lot of the understory, piled all that slash, and burned it. And then to follow up, we came in with prescribed fire treatment. And there were some remnant, you know, camas plants that were showing themselves. And in talking with some of the elders, you know, they talked about this used to be an area where there was camas. We came in in the spring, you know, Art Trahan brought us in, the crew, we lined out and burnt this. And then the next spring it came back flush with camas. It was pretty cool. So that plant was laying dormant and fire released it. And then Art brought us back in the fall and we did another application and the response was even stronger. So it was pretty interesting just to see how the cultural significant plant was laying dormant and fire released it. Tony shares about the significance on the camas plant and involving elders in their forest management. And camas uh, plant is a traditional uh, food of, of our ancestors, our people, our tribe. It's a, it's a bulb that, that you dig out of the ground. You know, only certain times of the years we, we can harvest it. And we would harvest it, uh, dig a pit, wrap it in its leaves, uh, boil it in the pit uh, for hours, and it's you know, come to a more of a softer texture. It's a very uh, different type of traditional food as it has a sweeter taste. And that's pretty valuable uh, as, as most traditional natural foods have a, a blander or, or bitter taste. So uh, camas was, was a treat and camas was used to trade, uh, you know, stories of ca trading camas for salmon with the Nez Perce. When we do a project site, we like to consult with our elders. And part of our IDT team is, is the preservation and the elders groups. And here we brought them out to this field, this site specifically, to show them the camas and, and the, the response the camas had back to fire. And they're really hopeful that following the river down uh, with our treatments and burning, that more camas will pop up with this um, unexpected high water table in this area. Camas is more of a water-loving plant in the spring we didn't know the water table like that was here until uh, we restored fire. Getting that culture involvement and, and you know learning from our elders of different management areas, what that area used to be like, what would is its function, what native plants were there, helps us guide our, our treatment plans to where we, we can set goals and priorities based on historic and traditional and ecological knowledge to restore that land back to its function and, and restore those native plants. The tribes put together an online resource called Fire on the Land, which provides a thorough resource for personal use or to use as a curriculum in academic or professional outreach around historical and current relationships with fire by indigenous peoples of the area.
The Fire on the Land project can be found at csktribes.org. So the Fire on the Land project started, you know, like, like I said, back when we were, we were doing the forest management plan and really diving into uh, trying to learn uh, from our elders and, and our fire history project of where we set fires, how we set fires, and what was the need and the purpose and the good of fires. So it really dug into uh, um, interviews with elders, um, interviews with, with scholars of looking at how the, our landscape here was shaped by fires, how our ancestors used fires in multiple ways, and then really putting it into uh, projects where we could teach that, learn from that, and pass that tradition along. I speak with Ron Sweeney about the other part of this work, which is fire management during summer wildfire season. Ron, as the fire management officer for CSKT, is on the ground with the action of the fire crews. You know, when you're looking at fire suppression and the amount of fire you're getting nowadays, it's coordination and cooperation and it's interagency. So we coordinate with the Lolo National Forest Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service, State of Montana, uh, Bitterroot National Forest. We all come together and we talk about the fire season. We start talking about resources that we have, fire danger that we're looking at, talk about restrictions and closures in case we want to start restricting the activity out in the wildlands to reduce the amount of fires. We do a lot of that coordination. We call weekly and talk about things. And once fire season kicks in, you know, we start talking daily. It's every morning and start sharing resources interagency wise. We'll go help you today. We need them back tomorrow type of arrangement. Cause this year we saw a shortage nationally of firefighting resources. We had a fire called the Boulder 2700 fire, number one priority in the nation. We couldn't get a crew assigned to it. There was just no crews available. So with this shortage, it draws more importance on the interagency relationship. And for the fire that we had here, Crooks, you know, Zero Charlie Hotel, a helicopter heavy out of Missoula, Every day, trucker was sending it up here to let us, to help us keep this fire from jumping onto this landscape. Every day. Sealy Lake, Adam Carr was sending us resources they had from Arizona almost daily to help fight this fire, which is the crooks, because he had interests. Sealy Lake had interests. Just try to keep that fire in its print so it wouldn't run towards Sealy Lake. When we start getting busy, we call in resources from different agencies, tribes, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Eastern Oklahoma region, Navajo region. They come in every year. And the reason we ride with that group, they know our ground, we know them, and the relationships established that we work well together. On the other hand, now they're in trouble. They're having hard times with their fires. So our resources are down there helping them. Those guys were amazing. 60 days they spent here on the res, a lot of them, helping us staff either Boulder, Initial Attack, or the Crooks. So just an amazing amount of work, dedication. And it looks towards that relationship, trying to enhance that. For us older dogs, it just is something that we built but for the younger that are coming up, it's training. They understand the relationship piece. They get an opportunity to go to Oklahoma, fight fire in a different field type. Those kids, same thing, come up here, 
get in a forested environment, ride a helicopter, fight our fire. I asked Tony about climate change, what impacts they're seeing on this landscape, and how their approach adapts to these changes. So climate change, is, it's, it's a slow process for a forest. It really is. But we're seeing, you know, obviously weather effects, uh, hotter, drier springs, um, you know, rain delivery in the spring, and then uh, drought starting earlier, which is affecting our fire season. You know, and some of the things we're doing to counterbalance that is, is changing timing of some of our treatments. Um, also looking at doing a lot of white bark restoration, high elevation white bark species. Uh, we've done a lot of cone collection, identification of habitat and restoration plans for those areas. And so we're really focusing on that upper end there because downstream water trickle effect, uh, you know, if we can help restore white bark and habitat up there, it, it can only do good, you know, as it goes down the valley. As trends shift to show more rapid snowmelt in spring seasons, Maintaining healthy whitebark pine and high alpine ecosystems helps by holding back snowpack, slowing the rate of runoff, and preventing erosion into streams and rivers, as well as creating many other benefits for overall ecosystem health and habitat. Our forests are finally catching up to that, that impact of, of fire suppression over 100 years. And, you know, some of our uh, lethal fire regimes, mixed fire regimes, they're, they're now turning lethal to fire dangers at its all-time extreme. And being able to handle and control some of those fires uh, is becoming harder. You know, and that's, you know, the exclusion of fire like that, it, you know, that's part of what our plan is, is returning fire. But like I said earlier, you know, we can't burn in the summertime like some of our ancestors used to. We can't burn besides fall and spring, uh, which may have, have caused some of those mosaic patches on the, on the landscape. Um, which, you know, wasn't a continuous uh, uh, dense forest like it is nowadays, which is causing, you know, larger wildfires, uh, faster, more rapid moving uh, incidents. Fire season is getting longer with, with climate change and changing of, of, of the weather. And that aligned with the, the structure of the forest right now with the density. It's, it's really setting it up for big events. Here's Ron Sweeney speaking to the changes that he's seen in fire management on the ground and how collaboration on a national scale is critical in this era of heightened wildfire intensity. Yeah, you look at fire seasons of today and you know, I like to compare them to when I first started and it's not even close. It's crazy how early the fire season starts, the type of weather that we've been getting. It's, it's not just temperatures and it's not just the humidities and the length of the sea, but it's the type of winds that we're getting. The combination of all of that together, climate's changing. The fires that we have now with the weather that we're having are challenging to the fire organization. You know, talking to like California and Washington and Oregon and Idaho, you know, early this year in July, they were talking about, we got a shortage of resources. We got a shortage in crews. We don't have, this isn't available, this isn't available. And typically that doesn't happen until the end of the season when kids go to school and things start winding down, but it happened early and it was continuously through the season. And we had more geographical areas that were in extreme, that were having a hard time, large fires, where we were stuck managing larger fires with smaller organizations for long periods of time. And 
the drain I think that that puts on, you know, the organization, these firefighters is tremendous. And I don't see it changing. You know, we talk a lot about fighting the fire of tomorrow with fuels treatments today. And that is our emphasis. Um, we just don't have enough resources to deal with the type of fire that we're having. And if we want to protect our resources from wildfire, we got to reintroduce fire when it's the right time. Anytime it's cooler, not as windy, where we can manage, control the fire behavior, and uh, protect our resources, but meet management goals and objectives, recognizing that in August, when the fire is bearing down, it's pretty nice to have done something to mitigate or to help slow that fire down, to reduce the fire behavior, protect the homes, give firefighters a chance. You know, it just makes you look, as soon as the season's over, the first thing we need to be doing is burning. And we talked about how smoke, there's smoke all summer long. Well, welcome to a fire-dependent ecosystem. Tony speaks about how their forest management plan works to incorporate the voices of the community and allowing residents to have ownership in what takes place in this landscape. I mean, like I said, back in 1995, 96, when we had the opportunity to, to make our own plan here, we, we feel ownership of this land. Every community member, non-tribal and tribal, they have some input of what goes on up here. They, they, they want to see a beautiful valley and they want to see uh, fire resilient areas. So I think it's very important that not only the tribal members but community members here buy in to what we're doing here and have uh, you know, ownership of the valley. Everybody here is really involved on, on how we manage our forest. Now we hear from Daryl Claremont, the prescribed fire and fuels manager for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, about their approach to prescribed burning and messages that he wants to share with the public on this work. I grew up here, actually was raised in Pablo, and I've lived here all my life. So the fuels program for the tribe, we do understory treatments, which include thinning, piling, pile burning, and understory burning. We also do a lot of grass burning. We're getting into a little bit of weed treatments with other tribal programs. The bison range, which the tribe just got back, we've been doing a lot of prescribed fire on the bison range when it was with the Fish Wildlife Service. So a lot of grass burning there for the buffalo. Our natural resource department has been given lands through our Kerr Dam program. And a lot of those were areas that had been under some type of farming or grazing, and there's a lot of weeds tied to those. That's the primary place we've been doing our, our burning is through NRD for those areas. We do a little bit you know, for other, other programs, uh, we do, we've, we've done some burning for elk uh, habitat, but that's kind of a mix between the lower areas in the grass and then up into the timber. But you can't just put fire back to the ground after so many years. After 100 years, you got an understory that just isn't receptive to fire without killing more than what you want. And I don't think a lot of the public understands that. They think we are able to come in and just lay fire and, and be able to control it well enough to where we won't kill everything. That's where our thinning, our piling, and our pile burning comes in. Generally, a year or two, we try and come back and then under, under burn that. And then we try to put it on a rotation where after so many years, we try and try to get it to a cycle, either five to 10, depending on how low elevation it is, or 15 to 20. We'll then just come back and repeat those burns. 
Daryl also mentioned a program called the Reserve Treaty Right Lands, which began in 2015 and includes CSKT partnering with other jurisdictions off of the reservation to carry out prescribed fire management in areas that the tribes have determined to be significant, whether for cultural reasons or for proximity to reservation lands. These partnerships include U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Nature Conservancy, among others. I asked Daryl if he had any final messages to get out there, which would help him and his team in this work. There's a lot of stuff that it takes, you know, just to get a, a project going. I know there's a lot of push to get streamlined for NEPA, but I, I haven't seen it. It's still a hindrance. You know, you can have a document to burn 20 acres, and it could be 60 to 80 pages long, take you two to three weeks to write. It's a lot of work to get a little bit of fire on the ground. So what we try to do is we look big. Um, if you're going to spend that much time in, you might as well put down as much fire as you can um, and make it cost effective. Here's Ron Sweeney with final words that he wants the public to know. You know, the interagency relationship's huge. It's a big part of our success. The rural fire departments and all the work they do, especially here in western Montana, I think it's often overlooked. You see that you know, around here a lot. It's a strong relationship that everyone needs to recognize and understand that it's important to us. The other thing I would say is, uh, you know, and Tony, he's a good leader. Once this starts going, once the, the bullets start flying, Tony commits a lot of people to our program. The heavy equipment operators, they come, they're right there on spot on, ready to go. So once fire season kicks in, and it's obvious it's gonna be a bad one, it's all hands on deck and uh, the fields program, forest development, forestry themselves, they all come in and pitch in. It's, it's a great deal. It's a lot of work, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of teamwork. It's something to behold in the type of work that we do and the amount of work that we get done. And finally, we leave you with Tony's final messages that he wants to share with the public. It's just the message that fire is good. That's part of what we've really tried here since developing our plan is public outreach of showing how fire helps ecosystems, how it improves the balance. The good over oversees the bad of fire. And I think better education and outreach of telling people, showing people that fire is, is good for the ecosystem goes a long way. Thank you so much to Tony and Cashola Jr., Ron Sweeney, and Daryl Claremont for speaking with us. You can find out more about the department's work their forest management plan, and the Fire on the Land project at csktribes.org. Direct links are in this episode's show notes. Additional thanks to Thompson Smith and Tony and Cashola Sr. and the Salish Kalispe Culture Committee. Thank you to Trevor Spotted Eagle for camera and technical assistance in the field and to Peyton Butler for editing assistance with this episode. We encourage you to check out the site lifeintheland.org to find the film featuring these voices on the Sealy Swan as well as films and podcasts from three other regions in Montana. Please reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. Thank you all for listening. This episode was recorded on the ancestral homelands of the Salish, Kalispell, Kootenai, and many other indigenous tribes that interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. Be sure to share these episodes with others and subscribe to hear more stories that create connections around a thriving planet for all. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. 
You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support. We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International, the Wilberforce Foundation, World Wildlife Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winna Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Wooded, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org. 